Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Shop Talk Show. We have two awesome spots for your environments for humans are promoting their SAS Summit. It's one of these online conferences that they do. This one is all about SAS and syntactically awesome style sheets. We've talked about it plenty here on Shop Talk Show. The URL for that is sassummit.com. It'll redirect you where do you need to go. And Delicious Brains, who sponsor probably the greatest WordPress plugin of all time, WP Migrate DB Pro, which is all about um, keeping your local and live databases in sync or between that and staging and whatever. And it's just a fantastic plugin, a super common question here at Shop Talk Show. And the answer is always use this plugin. Uh, check that out at deliciousbrains.com. And for, we'll tell you more about both those things later in the show. Let's kick things off. Another episode of the Shop Talk Show podcast, all about front end web design and development. I'm Dave Rupert, and it is raining here in Austin, Texas, so there's a good chance my internet it's will raining go out. Here and too. <laughs> with me is Chris Coyer. Hi, everybody. Hey, Thanks, everybody, for listening to Shop Talk Show. We have an uh, we have a we have an episode, a normal episode in which that we have a guest on, and we have Mr. Ian Feather. How's it going, Ian? It's going good, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, we had Ian on because because of his just amazing ability to write blog posts that resonate with me and the world and Dave and just are amazing. It's kind of like I think of Ian. Maybe this is a little weird, but it's like 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 a new <laughs> Nic- Nic- Nicholas Gallagher. You know how like he doesn't blog a lot, but when he did, it was amazing. And that's what Ian is doing now. I don't know if you're the the new, but but definitely <laughs> in that that category now. So Ian's blog is uh, ianfeather.co.uk. So you are in the United Kingdom, yeah? That's right. Yeah, in London. In London. London town. Working at Lonely Planet, literally the Lonely Planet that makes like the books that everybody buys when you travel and stuff, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we're trying to get that onto um, onto the web, basically, and uh, turn what is like a publishing company into a web company, which also publishes. Right, so that's kind of a, a classic transition for a lot of places, magazines doing that, newspapers doing that, but also, you know, <laughs> travel book publishing companies making that transition as well. So you're probably yeah. struggling with all the kind of the same things that that the rest of them are except for that I don't know you like you like have a product that people are already used to paying for right so I wonder if you know what well, I mean I guess you could just tell us what what is lonely planet's website like right now what are you doing are you trying to sell things there or just give away things or so originally when they moved to London when I joined it was about um pushing people into like travel services so we have all this great content, and the idea was that you know we you could get your entire trip sorted on dot com, so you could book your flights and your insurance and your hotel, 
Um, and now we're kind of going more back to let's just make really good content. Um, and rather than importing it from these books, which only get refreshed every few years, like flipping that model and, you know, getting daily content, which we then turn into a book. Um, so right now it's just about dealing with all this, um, like a lot, a lot of data that we're bringing in from what was originally a book format and repurposing it for, you know, something that people can get more involved with today and which is more daily and more, you know, more useful really. Yeah. What a crazy concept, you know, trying to use the web for what the web is good at. Yeah. Genius. Genius, really. <laughs> Novel idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I can see that seems interesting too of like, of like at first being like, we could just, you know, we're a travel site. People trust us for travel. Let's just do absolutely everything travel related all the way down to booking trips and stuff. I could see that feeling like, whoa, that's, a, you know, turns out that's kind of a crazy thing to bite off. So let's just focus more on what we're already yeah. good at kind of thing. That seems like pretty nice. Yeah. It's like a huge commitment. Too. It's a huge thing to do to try and yeah. offer all these things and try and do all of them well. You know, when other companies can just do one part really, really well, it's really hard to compete on that. So you kind of have to you have to pivot and you know try something else. And what we had was like decent content, so it seemed logical. Right. And your role there is uh, I'm the tech lead for all the client side front end stuff that goes on here, which. Basically wow. means okay. I kind so of so you're captain front end. Yeah, so I used to do the front end, and now I do a bit, but mostly I just take credit for everyone else's awesome work they do. <laughs> nice. I can't wait uh -huh. for that day. I am literally yeah. waiting around so I can have a team of people that write good work, and then I I talk about it. Uh, cool. So, <laughs> but that's not. I'm sure it's not entirely true because you've written you you wrote uh, one of the. Anyway, I guess we'll go in reverse chronological order. One of the, your most recent blog posts is talking about the CSS that happens at Lonely Planet, which was a reaction to, or not a reaction, but just kind of like Mark Otto had this really good idea to just like talk about what it, what CSS is like. What is it like like to work at uh, on CSS at GitHub? What does it look like, you know, architecturally and procedurally and and that type of thing? And it was totally interesting because he had like a good. I don't know. It's like everybody deals with that, but nobody gets to like look at each other's processes. And he's like, hey, yeah, but we should. And here's ours. And you ha rightfully identified how cool that was and then wrote that same post, but looking at how you approach it at Lonely Planet. And then I was like, you guys are so smart. I'm going to totally copy both of you and do it how we do it <laughs> at CodePen. And I posted one and it became a little like, you know, little thing for a minute. There's a good five, six of them, I think, posted of people's inside look and that you know the, the, no doubt about it that's the kind of thing that's good for our for our industries people looking at each other's yeah. processes so we can kind of learn from each other what what was your i mean was that your idea is well, i mean why yeah, did you I, choose to I read that, that thing? i read it and i just i loved it i loved the way the main thing was like he was kind of brutally honest about it he was like hey we should be doing this stuff better but you know it's it's tough like it doesn't always happen um, and we have a lot of that here. Like we have all these ideals of how everything should be done, but um, we also have a lot of different people authoring different stuff here and there. So it's kind of hard to contain it. Um, so I, I really liked that, and I just thought oh, it was brilliant to see what they do. So why not just you know design in the open here as well and get this stuff out there? And hopefully people found it interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, uh, 
I mean, I know it got shared around a lot because all those posts became popular and they all reference yours and Mark's, which is yeah, <laughs> yeah. good. I, I love it. I depend on these. I feel like whenever I'm like stuck in a, like, I don't know, how am I going to organize my CSS kind of situation? These posts are, are awesome to kind of go to and be like, okay, they're, that's how they're doing that at their scale. This is pretty awesome. I find them very helpful. Yeah. Um, cool. So, so that was that. And, and, uh, 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 then going back a little bit further from that, <laughs> the reason that you got on the shop doc show, like super guest list that we were, me and Dave were both excited about is because of the, a post you did about switching away from icon fonts to SVG, which is, was super important to me. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if that deserves drama anymore. I've decided that there's nothing dramatic. <laughs> There's nothing dramatic about it. It's just the right way to do things. On, on. <laughs> um, yeah. So maybe Keep walk speaking us. Speaking in absolutes, Chris. It's it's really good. Uh-huh. I've decided to go all in on this. Uh, all in on this this idea that SVG is just better. Period for for SP. But maybe walk us through that idea. What was that like? The, the time like for you use it a took, lot of icons. It took ages. Yeah, we use so many icons, um, and we'd been using a, an icon font for maybe a year or a year and a half or so. Um, and the main, the driving force, there was kind of a lot of things that were a bit of a pain point, like that I discussed in that article. But one of the big ones was that um, people in IE were getting really like crappy font rendering. You know how it sometimes does with the clear type, um, and we found that if we tried like the original font. Because we'd actually taken the font and added icons to the end of it into the Unicode area, um, and we, you know, during that process of re, you know, like rebuilding this font, we'd obviously kind of messed with something. So part of the reason they were getting such a terrible experience was because we exported it from Font Squirrel and exported it from Font Forge and Type Tool and all these other tools. Um, so you know, it was an opportunity for us to sort of readdress how we did this, and. SVG was becoming a bit more like a realistic um, goal. And yeah, really, we kind of just pushed for it. The thing we didn't know how to do was the multiple colors because we wanted to use a background so we could cache the entire um, the entire sort of file set of icons in one place, kind of like how Grunticon does it. Um, so once we kind of figured yeah. that out, which took a while, um, and then we were kind of flying. And yeah, really, like now we just don't even notice the process. It's all those niggles have just gone that we used to have with icon fonts. So it's really good. Um, I think if we were going to do it today, we would probably do it the way you did it in your post with the use element. Cause I mean, there's so many advantages to that. Um, but yeah. Oh, interesting. Know, so to go how is it actually again? Like yeah. <laughs> too much work. So yeah. just in case people are like, what the heck are they talking about? Um, it, this is about like using using icon needing some kind of icon system on a site, you know. Just like you need a, you know, we used to do sprites, or we used to, you know, there's there's always different kinds of way to do it. The, like an evolution of sprites is an icon font, which is an, just another way to squish a bunch of images together. And I feel like most people are aware of icon fonts and using them and stuff. But there's, it's tough to do really right, and and beyond the difficulty there, there's you know they're not quite as stylable as SVG is. They're not quite as accessible as svg is and um there's there's problems with them not loading and weird things with unicode and 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 ian did a really good job of being like here's like literally 10 problems with them 
and 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 then and then moved to SVG. So how did it? It doesn't actually go into. Well, maybe I should read every word of this. But how does it? Uh, how you implemented it actually turns out to be you did the like the base sixty four encoding in a CSS file. Is that the approach you took? Yeah, that's right. So it was completely the same as um, Grunticon, really, except. So they send um, each icon down under a different rule. So it's all sort of like you don't have to worry about icons bleeding in, um, but it doesn't give you an easy way of changing the color. There are ways to do it with Grunticon, right. but due to like this sort of, this sheer amount of icons we had, it we tried it and it didn't seem to be scalable at all. Um, so we we kind of figured that we came up with this pretty decent solution of um, every icon was was a sprite of the same icon five times and all of them are in different colors. And because, you know, you know, SVG, like that will just G zip down to basically one icon because it's all the same repeated pattern anyway. Um, so we could ship down five colors for the same price of one, basically. Um, and have yeah, them all that's cached what I've in heard. So that's interesting. Sheet. So what we're talking about kind of is, is that the, it's kind of like just saying background image, and then linking to a JPEG. But instead, you're linking to an SVG, and instead of a URL path to an SVG there, it's a it's a you know actual data URI of image in there. And so I've been a little curious about the when you'd use a data URI, it doesn't have to be base64. Base64 is an encoding type that like turns the file format of pretty much anything into this this long string of gibberish kind of stuff and I'm I'm pretty sure that that's what Grunticon Ica are you guys using base64 as well or you can just put the SVG syntax right up in there. Yeah, yeah so we that, we don't weird. we don't base64 it. Um and I don't think the guys at Filament do either. I think because that actually can we found it can make them larger. Um, but if you just yeah, send it actually them makes down them bigger as, in most cases. Yeah. yeah, but they gzip so well. So like, if you just put them in as you know, sort of raw SVG format, um, you know, a, a file which I think our entire icon set that we bring down is like 800 kilobytes, which gzips to like 60 or something. Um, wow. So it's it's really like it's really good compression, and we load that all asynchronously as well. So. You know, so somebody old. would see 800 and freak out, probably. They'd be like, 800? I can't possibly yeah. put this on my website. But then you look at how, how well gzipping does. So Base64, even without gzipping, makes it bigger. And then it makes it ungzippable because the differences between them, like the Base64 will be way different right. between a green version and a red version. But like if you if you think of a green version and a red version of an SVG file sitting right next to each other, the only difference in the syntax is one tiny little thing that says like fill red versus fill green or stroke red versus yeah. stroke green or whatever. Yeah. It's very subtly different. And that's what GZIP is very good at is identifying long strings of text that's identical and squishing it. So so if you look at the file size like, you know, git info on your in the on your desktop or whatever, it'll be like 800k or whatever like you're saying but because there's so much identical stuff in there gzip will eat that for breakfast you already explained that i was just kind of re-explaining it as i do <laughs> just doing it better yeah yeah great job uh, so that was before you know that the, the, your post thank you very much was got me really really interested in all this and then i kind of went full full hog and i've like converted the I'm trying to convert the entire world over to using svg as a system and and that way works but i it is 
it it is particularly cool to use inline SVG. What we're talking about is not inline SVG, but inline SVG has even more cool styling possibilities and is just as zippable and is just as cacheable and and that type of stuff. But it is a little more newer school and and isn't as uh, uh, I, I would hesitate to say not as deep of browser support, but but the fallback is certainly a little bit more difficult with with inline SVG, whereas the fallback for y'all can be. Just use a ping of the same size instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah and we only serve like a real small you? subset. Yeah, we do. We fall back for what we class as critical icons, so ones which are required for the user interface to work. Um, but ones that are complementary, like which just sit next to some text, we don't even bother sending down um, in PNG. Yeah, sure. Cool. So, what else, man? What are what? Uh, is there anything else you want to... I'm curious about Rizzo, the Lonely Planet style guide. Yeah. Because uh, you guys are kind of doing this style guide-driven development if, if to, coin, to help coin a term. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, how, I'm curious how that's been working for you guys. That's been a big topic for front-end people like, like, man, I make a pattern lab and then I make a website. Um, but then in reality, it's like, ooh, that didn't work so well. So I, I'm curious how that's working for you guys. Uh, yeah, so it's working really well, actually. Um, so the, the reason that we were kind of forced down that route was because of the architecture of, of our site. So like LonelyPlanet.com is split up into about 15 or so different applications. And all of them short share templates. And it was becoming really, really you know, difficult to maintain in the sense that if, once you change one class somewhere, you have to then go and change it in 15 different applications multiple times. So we, we chose to extract these templates out, outside into Rizzo. Um, and that, that was the main goal. And once we had that, actually making another 16th application, which was the style guide, which also used those templates, was really easy. Um, so now we just maintain Rizzo, which is kind of like the, the template library, and the style guide and the applications just stay in sync by, by proxy, basically. Um, so it, it kind of works in the sense that we don't really have to think about it too much. It just, you know, it just appears in both, two, in both places, and developers find themselves, like, developing stuff within Rizzo in the first place just because it's just as easy to develop there as it is in any of the other applications. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's like the ultimate well. success story of design patterns ever. You know, it's like everybody just yeah. likes it and they work in there because they want to and... and Yeah. I mean, it didn't happen. Everyone like, falls in line. Yeah. <laughs> so before, before Rizzo, I tried this twice, um, like in the three years I've been here. And the first one. Okay, so you're was aware like, that this doesn't work. <laughs> oh, it's it's so difficult, right? The first time um, was like a static one, and everyone was like, "Meh, whatever." You know, it, it doesn't help me, so it just never went anywhere. Um, and the second time, we tried a bit harder, but it still just didn't get anywhere. Um, so, so this time it's worked, but that wasn't the intention in the first place. The intention was just to make things easier and less of a headache to maintain. Ah, I and the see. Style guide so you have to not care. You have to give up, and then it works. Yeah, <laughs> got to hit rock bottom, and then you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. That I, it's uh, it's good to hear it failed. Yeah, <laughs> the way you guys seem to have pulled it off is super just elegant. It's just like. 
I, I it's cool because you bra- you can browse the site and then you go to rizzo.lonelyplanet.com is it slash style guide um, and then you're just like you can click and you see everything that makes up your website. It's pretty beautiful and it's you know of course you know just I don't know it's sharp. It, it looks like it's kind of saving you guys a lot of time and then also giving you a lot of consistency maybe across your site. Yeah, I hope so. I like we'd like to think so. Um, it certainly helps keep things in sync a little bit. Um, and it, it, you know, it came part of the reason it actually got built. The style guide as well was because we have this thing called Dev Days every two weeks, where developers can kind of work on whatever they want for a day, as long as it kind of in some way benefits Lonely Planet. Um, and so once we had kind of this little style guide, the devs here kind of. It was it was quite fun just to mess about and build something else for it, like a color picker or you know an icon finder and all these kind of little tools, which got people more involved with it as well. So um, yeah, it was just it was a bit of fun. I think that maybe the 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 key is in one of the little things you just mentioned, which is that developers are just as comfortable initially building within there than they are out on the page. Because I think that's one of the ways that it can easily break down is that like you need something that isn't in there or you need a variation on something that isn't in there. So you just build it however you build it, which is because, hey, like I feel more comfortable just working on the final page anyway, so I'm just going to do that and just do it however I normally do that. But if, it, if you make it more comfortable to build within, within some kind of style guide system first and then end up using it on the pages that you build... That will just that will make it stronger over time. It just it can't help but be better. So, well, I don't know what it is you did to make it more comfortable in there, but that seems. To well, I think like, part of it is probably that it's really difficult to do it everywhere else. So you know, by proxy, it's simpler in the style guide. But I, all of these templates like need um, need some data for it to sort of appear, and getting that data into all the other apps requires a bit of help from some backend developer or. You know, some kind of level of integration. And in the style guide, you can just put a YAML file there and you've got data already, you know. So it's up and running. I see. So you kind of make it hard to work on the final page because the final page needs some kind of developer (laughs) to to get you there, whereas you can just mess around. Yeah, Maybe that's the the trick. Uh, Yeah, well, it wasn't intentionally hard, but it just happens to be No, no, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. I just I, w- I want to do it too, but I actually published a post recently about design patterns breaking down, and not like not breaking down. But it was more like you need a variation on a design pattern, and I'm always kind of interested in that too, right? Like you have a module that needs to be slightly different than the module that's currently in the pattern. Do you have? Is there examples on your site where there's like you know you started with one, and then really it turns out you needed like six, but like like and then it, I guess maybe it'd be easier to put a point on it. You know, like a a drop down menu that is a different color than another drop down menu. That's like a variation on a design pattern. So, do you like add a class to that to like you know the UL wrapper or something, or do you do you add a class to the body in which that design pattern appears, or do you have like a system for dealing with variations on patterns, and then do you document those or just let them live out in the wild? So the the way we do it. so variations within design are kind of, um, we have designers who try to avoid too much variation in the first place, which does help us out a little bit. Then if, you know, if there is just a new type of widget, um, 
you would ex you would allow that component to be extended. So you would be able to pass in a modifier class, and you would do it that way. So you you know you'd pass in like drop down hyphen blue, let's say, um, and then you would style that in your own in your own application. Or maybe sometimes if you think that's going to be reusable, then drop down blue would be inside Rizzo as well. And I mean the CSS for it rather. Um, okay. But if there is like wild variation, it's just trying to we try to curb it back. Um, and yeah, I, oh actually, so the, the way we would document that if it was drop down blue is we would add another section in the YAML file which just has that extender class, and then automatically the widget will appear in Rizzo with a blue background or whatever. So it kind of self documents in that style as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I love it. So okay. I don't know. I, I kind of like that they're not necessarily always in Rizzo or whatever, because it, it seems like that's yet another way that these can break down is that there ends up being so many variations on a theme that it, get, it feels overwhelming or it doesn't feel as like modular and nice. And, you know, it's kind of like we built the system for you to vary these a little bit and feel free to use that. But, you know, you know unless it's a major variation, don't feel that other people could use. Don't put it in here. There's probably a lot yeah, of like totally. really subtly smart things you're doing here that I'd like to to finger out for because it's working, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, I, maybe it's not working for everyone, but yeah. Yeah, what? Well, it, yeah, it's tough. I've definitely been in situ, you know, in places where it's you know maybe didn't fail, but it has yet to take off kind of thing. And, you know, I'd like to do it on CodePen myself, but then it's just me. And then I'm like, I don't know if, the, if, there's, if there's value in, in it being just me or if I'm just preparing for a day where there's more than just me and that would be smart or not sure. I think they, they, they definitely have more value in larger teams than solo projects. But Yeah, it's probably a lot of effort for you just by yourself to get that going but it might also like expose a lot of cons inconsistency and stuff you know right there's value outside like, of oh wow i've i've used 800 colors yeah. of blue that's a mistake or whatever or you might not even notice that that, that problem just solves itself because pattern library mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all right well Shall we, Chris, get into the meat and potatoes of the sure, Shop Show questions we and answers? We should do that right after I tell you about the SAS Summit. The URL for that is SAS, S-A-S-S, summit.com. So there's really three S's in the middle there. I think your fingers will figure it out, though. SASSummit.com will take you where you need to go. It is an online summit put on by the fabulous people at Environments for Humans. It's on November 6th. So coming up pretty soon here, uh, less than two months as you're listening to this, but plenty of time to ask your boss to buy you a ticket or save up the quarters, dig in your couch and find them. Uh, because it's online, these things, are, they, they tend to be a little less expensive than uh, than in-person conferences. This is for an individual ticket to to go to the SASConf. It's 179 and you'll hear from lots of smart people all up in the SAS world. Um, I'm excited that Micah Godbolt is speaking there. I list, I've been listening to some of his podcasts podcast from uh, his thing he does called Sass Bites. I listened to a bunch of them um, of him working with Susie, which is a really cool 
add-on for SaaS for uh, kind of on-demand grids, I like to think of it as, but he won't, he's not even talking about that. He's talking about some other cool stuff. Source maps, maps in the parent selector, and they, Micah knows tons about SaaS. Uh, John Long, Elise Holiday, lots of people talking about SaaS in this one-day online event that you can go to for anywhere in the world. We have a free ticket to give away. How should we do that? I'm kind of thinking that we should, because we've been talking about style guides so much, if you can explain an awesome success story of a style guide at your company in one minute or less as an MP3, uh, send it in and we'll give you a ticket to the SaaS Summit. How does that sound? I know that's a little specific, but maybe it doesn't have to be a success. It could be a failure story either way. So <laughs> just in case, uh, something about style guides, one minute or less MP3, send it in. We'll play it on the air and give you a ticket to the SaaS Summit. One one winner as determined by us. <laughs> SaaSSummit.com. Let's do some Q&A. Right. What do you got, Dave? All right. Well, um, all right. Here is the first question. It comes from Andre Pham. You know that moment when you have to add some special shapes, <laughs> add some special shapes into your front end, uh, like little triangles over here, some diamonds over there, a huge hexagon in the middle, maybe some weirdly g shaped geometrical figure in the background. What's your approach to this? Do you craft them by hand in CSS or do you export images from Photoshop and use them right away? Because uh, there are some factors to keep in mind, like the number of HTTP requests, the loading speed, the responsiveness of the design, and the ability to alter color and so on. What do you guys think? Uh, what is the decision when it comes to this? And obviously, what are the reasons behind it? So this is the the future of colors, shapes, and and fonts here. Uh, what uh, what do you do when you you get a hexagon in your CSS, Ian? Uh, well, um, I guess if it was just you know like my own portfolio site or something, maybe you could just mess about with some CSS and try try and you know see if you can accomplish that that way. If it was for something larger, probably just go with an SVG background or something and get get a designer to illustrate it for you. That's how I would approach it. Um, it sounds like a kind of a yeah a tricky one to to do. Yeah, I mean, I think all of us are probably picturing something a little different. I mean, Andrew seems to be talking about there's a, you know, it literally said background. So once something's in the background, you pretty much are relegated to uh, CSS backgrounds because it sounds like you're going to need stuff over it. So background is kind of the way to go there unless you're, you know, are able to absolutely position stuff over it and stuff. That's always kind of a weird way to go. So, um, but, but there's, you can absolutely, you, you're, you, everything that you said was about geometric shapes, which is just always the territory of SVG. Like the, the, the file size of a, of a single color hexagon and SVG is going to be tiny, tiny, tiny. Uh, and you can drop that in, in CSS just fine. Like we talked about at the top of the show, if you need uh, multiple colors of that, that's the kind of thing that if you drop it in CSS as a data URI of just the SVG syntax, that's the kind of thing that you can put multiple versions of it in a CSS file of different colors and have gzip just squish away very, very easily. And, and, and even as a background in CSS as SVG, uh, it will it, it can scale so you can use the background size property and just even if it's a tiny looking hexagon in illustrator you can serve it 50 times larger than that and it will still be pretty dang sharp 
That's just how SVG works, and it's pretty cool. So that's a way to do that. But if you're saying little triangles over here, little diamonds over there, um, that seems more like icon territory, and you can use CSS for that as well. They are at Lonely Planet, you saw. But uh, I, I tend to think of those type of things as little inline SVG opportunities just because then you can control all that styling through CSS um, by just using like fill and stroke and and all the normal CSS properties that you're used to in addition to those weird SVG ones. Um, yeah, definitely look up SVG as an icon system. There's definitely some posts on CSS tricks about that. Uh, good luck, I guess. Do we have any final words? On- I was going to say, if it's something like a speech bubble or something where I need the shape to connect to a div, I'll, I'll, that's when I'll use CSS. That's the only thing I can like really... I don't know. Think, think like, yeah, I'm going to use CSS here. Um, so that, yeah, that's my only example. I can't, I can't really think for like whatever trinkets and design stuff. Yeah. I would probably just use SVG. Um, cause having a bunch of like extra CSS rules and empty divs in your design just to make that kind of happen seems kind of weird to me. So Yep. Kristen Valentine writes in it, and this is again talking about SVG and what you guys are doing at Lonely Planet, but it may allude to a build tool, which could be interesting. Kristen writes in, I noticed that Lonely Planet uses SVG icons, but they appear to be base64 encoded. Curious about the decision to go that route, and how is it set up in the CSS file, i.e. what happens when they need to edit or add icons? Right, yeah. So so I guess we kind of discussed the base64 stuff already. Yeah, um, it's not actually 64, but it is a data URI. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, the reason we put them originally in one big um, style sheet was for performance reasons, so we could just cache that one thing. Um, in terms of our build workflow, is we have a, a Dropbox folder full of icons from our um, designers, which syncs with, we can just sync that locally um, using rsync. And then we run a grunt task, which is um, which uses Grunt, Grunticon from the filming group. And we have two different mm-hmm. tasks. One is active, one is for like critical and one is for non-critical. The critical ones um, build SVGs into a CSS style sheet and also they build PNGs. And the non-critical ones, they just build one SVG, uh, one SVG CSS file, sorry. Uh, and then we serve them both depending upon um, the, the browser of the user. So it's Grunticon, so it's part of a build process. So you might even have some fancy thing where whenever you change an SVG that happens to be in probably this folder full of SVGs that sits somewhere in your project, uh, or perhaps there's two folders, this critical and non-critical one, um, and change it, Grunticon will fire off and, 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 and make the changes to the style sheet as necessary, right? I mean, even if you don't like aren't watching the folder, you can at least fire it off whenever you want to, right? So edit an icon, fire off Grunticon, good to go. Yeah, yeah I mean, we could do that. Like, in fact, if we watched the, if we had like a watch task or whatever, which was configured to look at the Dropbox folder, it'd be even a bit nicer. Um, although we'd probably have that kicking off quite a lot because we do change them. Like, I suppose, I suppose that would actually make a lot of sense. The way we have the them separated into two directories is they all live inside the a non-critical folder, and then we have a critical folder which just has symlinks to the non-critical ones, and then the grunt task just runs over over both both directories and figures it all out. Mm-hmm. Cool. 
All right. Good luck, Kristen. Uh, I mean, I guess you just kind of wanted to know about Lonely Planet, but you got some information there. Um, uh, an anonymous person writes in, and I guess I have, uh, you know, it's it's weird how rare that is here on Chop Talk Show, but I guess we have no particular problem with it because the question is just as interesting anyway. Anonymous writes in, how do you guys deal with what I call project shame? When finishing up project, I always look back and wish I did specific parts differently, even parts that literally nobody will care about other than me. Maybe my page size is 200K higher than I think it should be, or the, the CSS or JS is messy at parts. Maybe I feel like the design has been lacking from the get-go based on my personal standards. I'm uh, definitely a perfectionist. At the end of the day, my client raves about the good product, but and my team raves about the end product. Uh, and even I know it's objectively good, but the part of me doesn't believe that it's just it just, just doesn't believe that because it's just not perfect. No matter how good the end product is, I and always end up finding the imperfect parts to hate, resulting in my career being a never-ending flurry of product shame. <laughs> this is kind of sad. <laughs> does, that, does that happen too with you guys, or should I go see a therapist? <laughs> Do you have project shame over the things that you work on, Ian? That sounds tough. That sounds really hard. Um, yeah, God, I don't know how to um, help in terms of getting past being a perfectionist. Um, I, I guess over here, I suppose a lot of people start with that attitude that you want everything to be perfect, but in such a large sort of ecosystem, it's pretty clear soon that you can't control absolutely everything and make absolutely everything as good as you want it to be. There just isn't enough time. So I guess for us, we just have to, I would always say like, you need to pick your battles, you know, which ones, is it worth you going back and, and cleaning this up if it's only going to impact a tiny portion of the site when you could spend that time, you know, making this next part really, really great or this part, which like so many more users see really, really great um, and, and kind of work out what what's the best thing to spend your time on that way. Um, but yeah, in terms of, Pixel perfection, etc. I, I, I don't know. That's tough. That's a difficult one to get past. Right. It's a. Uh, I feel like you're. Some part of this is sad, and some part of it is happy because, and I've met people like this before. If you think everything that you touch turns to gold, you're that's a bummer place to be too. You know, if you finish a project and you're just nothing but patting yourself on the back and look at how perfect this project is and, and, you know, showing everybody who will look, it's kind of like, how do you grow from that? You know, I, I feel like it's a little bit more realistic to be a little bit more critical of your own ability. And if you're not focusing on things that you could have done better in there and instead you're just, just Mr. Happy pants about everything that you did, that sucks, you know. How it'll be hard to grow, and in my experience, people like that aren't as good as they could be, you know. But if you're just if you if if this if you just were embellishing this for the sake of of interesting to read question, and you actually are aren't aren't you know buried in sadness, uh, that's good. I think you're at a, a good place. It's good to to have be critical over your own work. But if you really are like chronically depressed because you just you know, maybe you should see a therapist, you know, I don't know. What do you think, Dave? Do you have project shame? I, you know, I think I do deal with this and I think it, there's a little, just some tips that you can, uh, 
have like lower your expectation. I think that's like the first thing. <laughs> like, like I, I'm coming around to the idea that no website is ever done, right? Even client jobs where it's like I made a PSD and I made a website that's perfectly matches the PSD and I gave it to him. Like, I feel like the second you like close a project folder, the website is dying and, and is dead. And just, just in the nature of turnover of our business, nothing ever like the second you stop working on it, it is dying. Uh, so <laughs> I guess just realize that everything is kind of never finished and never perfect. And, and again, it's, it's all about money. It's like, is it, you know, is it worth your time and health and brain power to go back and fix that 200 kilobytes of JavaScript or, or is it just like, is it worth your mental health to just let it go? Um, and, and then if the client isn't paying for it, I mean, you can just, you know, they didn't budget or your company didn't budget for, you know, massive cleanup at the end. So I, I mean, I think it's important to just be happy with some, how something turned out. You could that, do the Laura um, Swanson thing also, where you, you know, as soon as something good, significantly good happens, you eat a donut, you know, and, and reflect on that. Be like, <laughs> I did a good job. I'm going to eat this donut and then be done and then move on to the next thing, you know, but don't like, as soon as you hit the publish button, be all down on yourself, you know, take a pat your back once and then move on. Okay. I guess like an, a quick other yeah. point on that would be that, um, I think, if, you know, if in our job, everything evolves so fast in our industry and you're constantly, hopefully improving on your skills. So in some sense, when you look back, you're always going to be like, why did I do something that way? And, you know, you're always going to be kind of very critical of work that happened a year ago or two years ago, just by the nature of how, how our industry moves. Indeed. Yeah, it's like take mental note of what you didn't like in that project or or what didn't end up right and then just try to head it off at the pass the next time around. I mean, oh, I launched a website and the submit button didn't work on on the key con the like cap contact capture form. Uh just never do that again <laughs> next time. So <laughs> Right, Tess. You learn and you kinda you you like like you can turn that project shame into not not like something that brings you down permanently about that project, but it like is something that makes you better on the next one. So um, yeah, and if your team's happy, your boss is happy, and your client is happy, that's everyone happy. And you could probably sell them like in a year or something. Be like, hey, we want to come through, clean up, make your site better, faster. That's good for Google blah, 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 and they'll pay you for that. So that's uh, that's how I would approach it. But, uh, <laughs> next question, mm -hmm. shall we? Here, I got a pew. All right, next question <laughs> comes from, uh, we got Daniel Turwill, Tur Turwile from the Netherlands. Uh, I'm wondering why a lot of people are choosing Bower components over cache versions from a Google Cloudflare hosted CDN. Is the latter way faster most of the time? Question mark. Uh, Ian, how do how do you do it? Do you use like Cloudflare CDN or Google CDN, or do you Bower and roll everything into your own little package? Uh, we use uh, we use Bower and um, 
compile a package locally. Um, I, I guess we wouldn't call like our components from the page as such. You wouldn't notice you were doing so. It would all be part of a pre-compile step. Um, yeah, and we use, so we will we'll have our own our own modules, some Bower modules, um, and you know roll those both into two different packages, and they get hosted on a fastly CDN. And um, yeah, we just upload those during our build process step before we deploy. Yeah, so we don't use any public facing um, CDNs as such; just the one we that we have at Lonely Planet. I feel like that's there's like even a little confusion here in that I would think it would be really rare to link to even a local Bower component from a from a deployed site. You know, Bower is for like pulling down the component and then you probably smush it all up into your own package. However, you do that, you know. And like the the CDN thing was like a hot discussion like a couple of years ago. Like, should I should I use jQuery off of a CDN? Isn't that beneficial because it's so fast and people might already have it cached and that that type cached. of stuff? But it, I think largely lately the world has moved away from that and it's like, no, you're probably using a variety of libraries as well as your own local JS. It's always better to concatenate all that stuff together and serve your own package. Like the few K that you serve from having a Google cached version of jQuery or something like that, and jQuery is like the only example too. You know, like there's 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 no other library that's as ubiquitous as that. So like the benefits is is pretty much that whole conversation is pretty much isolated to that, which is I don't know, it's just weird. So chances are, what you should be doing is you know if you want to use Bower or not, whatever, have all your components that you pull down concatenate, compress them all together, serve them gzipped, or even better, get them on a CDN and then host from there. You know, like your, I guess Cloudflare kind of does that kind of automatically, but you could also just, you know, use an Amazon CDN or, uh, God, what's the one I use? Max CDN. Yeah, definitely get on a CDN. There are some free options, I think, out there as well for small sites, and it will hugely help your users who have high latency. Totally. Cloudflare is one of those free ones, I think. It's just a little funky because I think you have to like move, point your name servers at Cloudflare and stuff, and that kind of stuff is a little uncomfortable. But um, for what I hear, I on, pretty much only hear kind of amazing things about Cloudflare. So enjoy. And then it's not like this build process either, right? It's not like it's not like you have to like have some build or deployment step that moves all your assets to the to the CDN area or even some special plugin or something like I use on CSS tricks. I, you know, it is integrated with WordPress somehow and, and gets assets over there how it needs to. You don't have to do any of that with Cloudflare. I think it just because it goes through Cloudflare, all your assets are just kind of automatically CDN'd up. I think anyway, <laughs> feel free to correct me on that one. Anybody? I thought that was kind of the magic of it. I was just going to say the only time I ever use like the Google or Cloudflare CDNs now is when I'm like experimenting and I don't want to pull something into my library and make it dirty and, and all that like masonry. If a client is like, yeah, we want the homepage to be masonry JS. I'm like, mm, let me just pull it from there and work out, work on it rather than, uh, but, you know, or if I'm in a code pen, I'll just like link to the Google or, or 
Cloudflare version uh, just to make sure that it's outside of what I'm working on. And then later merge it all down. That's kind of what I do. I want to tell you about I, I should you know what I should have pulled in one of these questions because I feel like I have a little archive of them in our in our shop talk little question thing which is basically how do I sync uh, WordPress databases between live and local always worded slightly differently or they explain their situation but that's what they're really saying we actually made a FAQ page on shop talk shoptalkshow.com slash FAQ I think and we put this one in there because of mm-hmm. because of how common it is and we literally link to this too not an affiliate thing or whatever all the they are sponsoring this particular episode. It's deliciousbrains.com is like the company, and they make this WordPress plugin called WP Migrate DB Pro. Uh, and, it, and it is for this. You buy this and you install it locally on your local version of your WordPress install, which of course you do, right? <laughs> and then on your live site as well, or just deploy it up because everything's all, all synced that way. And you know, it's pretty easy to keep the rest of WordPress in sync, right? Because you just, you're working on your theme locally and then you deploy it live and yay, your theme is live. But let's say you're live and you publish a blog post and the styling isn't quite right in that blog post and you're like, I need to work on that. Well, how do you fix up that blog post? Because that's live, not local. You need to kind of pull it, you need to pull that content back down. But the database live and the database local is different. Different, right, you don't have that blog post locally. So how do you get it locally? Well, there's you know there's exporting and importing in WordPress and stuff, but it's a, it's a little bit janky and you, you know it's just not as clean as just be like, can you just keep these things in sync, please? All the settings, all the users, all that stuff. Uh, WP Migrate Pro does that. You literally just open a special little area in the admin of WordPress in both places uh, and enter in some some kind of information from both, like what's the URL for the live site. Put that on the Locals, and then you can pull it down. You can actually go in both directions. So if you like working locally or you're on a flight or something, you can write your posts on your local WordPress, and then when you're off the flight, you can push it up too. So it works in both directions. But it just keeps those that stuff in sync really easily, kind of click of the button syncing, which is just fantastic. Uh, uh, I use it literally on CSS tricks. We use it on Shop Talk Show. I use it on the CodePen blog. I use it at every single WordPress site I have just because even when you're like, starting a new site or whatever like just get it installed in there so you can you're always like one click doing this stuff it's kind of a form of backup too which is nice uh it works over uh https automatically too so it's not like you know you're worried about sending secure things up and down or whatever just a really nice it has a really nice ui just the way to go as far as this thing is concerned thanks for sponsoring delicious brains we'll put a link to the plugin in our show notes wp db migrate pro let me ask one here. We have one from Philip Payton, who writes in, I work in an environment where the JS architecture isn't really understood by the majority of my coworkers. This isn't because I don't know how to write JavaScript, but it's because I do not normally write JS in a... a, a or the, the developers I work with don't write JS in a classical fashion. They are used to writing functional JS instead. Should I continue writing classical JS in this environment, or should I start writing functional JS so that my coworkers are more likely to understand my code? I'm actually not even sure what the difference between those two things are, really. Do, you, does he, do either of you guys understand what the difference between classical and functional JS is? I've heard of functional programming, but I'm not sure if that's what he's talking about. I guess by uh, by classical, he, I mean I would I would guess he's he's talking about object oriented and you know using it in a more class like like trying to use JS as a class like language, um, 
whereas functional programming tries to sort of ebb the other way. Um, they can definitely coexist, though. Like, um, in fact, I think like a, a pattern which is used quite regularly is to have functional techniques within within objects, so they can definitely um, coexist. That shouldn't really be such a sticking point. I don't think that everyone fails to understand the architecture. Um, but, you know, the only thing I could really suggest to help would, you know, be to sit down and try to agree on, you know, some level of consistency, and which you then you then use to go forward. And um, it doesn't necessarily matter which one or if it's a hybrid or however, as long as there's some sort of sense of agreement um, about the way things will be done. Yeah, that sounds super level-headed and reasonable to me. It's like, so maybe you should both try to understand each other a little better or talk about it a little bit more? Or is it you that understands both methods and prefers one? Or could you morph to them so that they understand it? It does kind of seem like writing code that your coworkers under specific, you know that they don't understand is a little weird. So they either need to level up or you need to change, I would think. Or you should just ha- have a conversation about which direction to head. What do you think, Dave? I yeah, I don't know. I I think you just need to choose a system uh, and stick to it. That's kind of just like a style guide of code for your organization. Um, and I mean, you may be able to make the case that classical, you know, inheritance or whatever is better than functional inheritance, but I don't know. I mean, I mean what is I guess you'd have to just, it seems like splitting hairs because JavaScript is that weird language where it can kind of do both. So um, if I were to uh, pundit about it, I would say, you know, uh, classical inheritance or classical JS, if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. That was amazing. (laughs) Really high quality job. I was building to that. Um, but seriously, just talk with your coworkers. Is that, do we have a just build websites for talk with your coworkers? (laughs) (laughs) That is the answer a lot of times, isn't it? You're like, have you heard of communication? (laughs) Not that you don't. I'm sure that you do fill up. Good luck with working with your coworkers. Let's do another question, Dave. What do you got? Uh, here we go. Uh, Grant Vincent writes in, first of all, I'm a huge fan of the show. We're a huge fan of you, Grant. Uh, I do have a question about SVG though. Do you tend to create them by hand typing the points for lines and whatnot, or do you simply export SVGs from illustrator? I don't, I, I would not recommend writing them by hand personally, but I I wouldn't know where to begin doing it by hand. Like, yeah, use a tool all the way. I would say pretty much nobody does that. You know, you'd have to be pretty hardcore. I mean, even if you're making a a line from point X to point Y, that's still you know, unless it's like a straight line, in which case why use SVG or a forty even a forty five degree line is a little that maybe that would be the only thing I could think of that you would want to do by hand is a forty five degree line because then you just do like zero zero and like fifty fifty or whatever and it will draw or but as soon as it's like a forty degree line, then what you know and then and then it's like anything above that is like definitely a tool time. 
uh, vector. And it's not even because you're giving up or that it's too hard or anything. It's just that the, the, the GUI tools for working with vector are so good that it's like, why not use them? And the output is generally fine. And even if it's not how, exactly how you would have done it, you can tweak it by hand or run it through optimizers and that type of thing. So I definitely think working in Illustrator or some other vector program is your best bet. And you know, a lot of times a lot of people work with SVGs without even looking at them at all. You just you just know that you have the icon. You know, if you download an SVG from Icomoon or whatever, I they're so the ones in there are so well considered and ready to rock that you might not even look at it at all. You know, you might not look at the code or the look at it in Illustrator. I generally recommend that you do. Uh, I think the Noun Project is pretty good, but it's like very common that I'll download something from the Noun Project and it will be like a little janked up inside. Like there'll be some kind of, it'll be multiple paths that need to be smushed together or just something a little funky about it. It's on like a weird sized canvas or something. Anyway. It's kind of a weird thing where you need with SVG, I feel like you need to know how to work it in Illustrator or something like that. And but you also need to know how to work it in code because there are times I open up the SVG and start tinkering, like clearing out a view box or a width element or something or a width attribute or something like that. Um, but I would never write it all by hand. Um, the second you get to a path element, it's like done, quit. I can't do this anymore. Um, so I, yeah, I mean. There, but I would also like, there's also things like you can like edit colors in your SVG from your code editor. So that's, that's important to know how to do. So you kind of need to know like both sides of the, the fence, the designer tool side and the development tool side. Lovely. We uh, just, just to finish this out, we're going to do all, every single question that I picked this week. Let's just knock this last one out. How about that? Do it. Go. Tyler Shambora writes in, is the return on investment in terms of building from scratch and maintaining your own blog worth the time and effort that it takes, or can that same amount of time be spent doing something equally productive? I am overestimating, or am I overestimating the potential upside, or is building your own blog a rite of passage for a young web developer trying to level up? The internet seems pretty, pretty split on the subject. What are your opinions? Is it a colossal waste of time or does it provide you with lifelong lessons? Uh, I put this in there because I was kind of, um, I, you know, we get a lot of WordPress questions and sometimes it's kind of nice to know what people have used or whatever. So I did a little view source on ianfeather.co.uk and it seems, it's hard to tell. There's very <laughs> little CMS <laughs> testing in here. I, I would guess Jekyll though. Yep, bingo. <laughs> Yeah, so it's uh, yeah, it's cool. It's so all just, the way, yeah. Um, is that would you consider building your own like like what Tyler is asking here is I want to build my own blog. Is using Jekyll? Do you think that would be? Because I feel like that's in the middle of like literally writing your own blogging software <laughs> and using something like WordPress where you get a fully functional blog just you know with a few clicks or whatever Jekyll's right in the middle of that kind of like it's you need to do some work to get Jekyll to do <laughs> to actually be making your blog maybe that would be a good way for him or do you consider that making your own blog or do you have any advice for him I guess I'd consider that making your own blog um I don't know if it's a if it's the right way to go I mean there I mean WordPress is a great option Ghost is a great option um 
Jekyll was kind of like, for me, kind of scratching my own itch. I just really wanted to like have a, you know, like fully take control over what the site was. I didn't need all the sort of CMS capabilities of WordPress or anything like that. Um, but it, it does end up being way more effort than you, you sign up for. Like you just sort of every now and again, you like go back to it and don't remember how anything works. And, you know, cause I, I blog really infrequently. So every time I come back to it, it's confusing to me. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's a bit of fun to make it as well. So I don't know. I'd say if you have a bit of free time and you want to like, you want to sort of level up a little bit, then, then go for it. Roll your own with Jekyll. Um, it's certainly quite powerful. Um, but if you just want to focus on writing, then maybe just use WordPress or Ghost or Tumblr or one of the other many mm-hmm. options. It seems like we're all in agreement that writing your own blogging software might be a little tough <laughs> for your first project ever for your own personal blog. I would think that'd be a little scary too, because like I, I really like the idea that no matter what you write, it like kind of lasts forever. And like you'll get that with most of these systems, there'll be some way to export it or import or, or or hold on to that content for a long period of time. Whereas if you're just absolutely doing everything from scratch, that like there's a little more danger that you lose some of that early stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Jekyll's right in there. I, it's like it's it is building your own blog, and it seems like Jekyll's not going anywhere. So, and I know Dave's gone that route too. And actually, I'm just finishing, and we, we and I and I published my first live Jekyll site last night. So, um, where all three of us <laughs> have some Jekyll experience, we're just a bunch of Jekylls. Uh, I this is something I'm like. I'm getting like super, <laughs> I'm super interested in, I was watching John Stewart this morning, you know, in, in huge John's St- fan, huge Jekyll. He's big on Jekyll. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a contributor, uh, to the repo. Uh, so, but the people that come on John Stewart are like either authors or actors. Right. And then I was like, why does he have authors on there? And they're always talking about books, you know, cause like books are dead. Books are stupid. Books are dumb. Uh, that's what I was thinking in my head. And then I was like, no, like the, the book is just evidence that you've thought through a subject like in its entirety or whatever, like, like, and so that makes you at least somewhat knowledgeable in, in a, a person who can like communicate things. Uh, somewhat effectively. So that's why he has those people on the show. And then I was like, Oh, that kind of is the same for web development. That's why you'd have a blog is because it it proves that you can think through a topic and and share ideas on that, you know, and that's why, you know, everyone pretty much we've ever had on shop talk show has a blog with, with really interesting comments. Ian's a good example. Um, So I, while like building your blog from scratch is like, like, I would never recommend doing that, but like, like getting a piece of software and making sure you can like theme your blog from scratch, like writing the theme to it and stuff like that. Like that's kind of the thing too, is like you're proving that you are able to like code out a theme that, that I don't know, comes from your point of view or whatever. So, and then the things you write on your blog are, are also your way of like thinking through problems and things. So, I, I think in terms of a blog being a rite of passage, I think it is. I think you have to have one <laughs> personally or or at least it's like an incredible value to you and it's an investment in your future. That's what I think. <sighs> <laughs> that's all I can, That's what I, I would. I'm just like I was that's fresh on my brain. And then, uh, you know, like 
I don't I don't think everyone needs a blog, of course. Like I wish a lot of people didn't have blogs, but like <laughs> but uh but like I don't know. I, I think like I think it's kind of a very important rite of passage for any front end developer to maintain a website on your own. So Yeah. That's where I'm I'm on the absolute train, Chris. What do you think about that? I love everything you have to say. <laughs> All right. Uh on on that bombshell, <laughs> uh thanks everyone for uh coming out and listening but ian thank you for taking time out of your day uh uh and joining us uh for those who aren't following you and giving you money how can people do that and then what's one big thing you'd like to plug what's the the big thing uh so you can follow me on twitter that's probably the easiest way to get hold of me um i usually get back to people quite quickly um no need to give me money uh that's all good um terms of plugging, nothing in particular. Um, I guess if you like what you've heard about Lonely Planet and want to, you know, feel like you want to come and help out and be paid for it, then get in touch as well. We're always hiring. But other than that, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been really good. All right. Yay. Thank you. And thanks everyone for coming out, listening live in the chat room. Uh, it was a little broken today. Apologize about that. But, uh, and thanks for voting us up in your podcatcher of choice, subscribing and wherever, following us on Twitter. Uh, Chris, you got anything? I wonder if we should do sponsors at the bottom. SAS Summit, Delicious Brains. Anyway, shopdogshow.com. <laughs>